You are listening to Real Presence Radio. In the next hour, we have Dr. Jan George from Sacred Heart Productions, teaching on the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George, a retired university teacher of literature, has a Master of Theology from the University of Dallas. She is with us today, covering the following six topics. It is Jesus who speaks the word we hear. Second, with love, God calls all sinners. Third, in the presence of the Lord, we do not fast. Fourth, our response to the law of Christ reveals our hearts. Fifth, Christ founds his church on the apostles. And sixth, our relationship with God takes precedence over all. Tune in at this time each week when Dr. George will be walking us through the chapters of the second gospel from Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study, produced by Sacred Heart Productions. Accompanying lessons for each week can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org, along with lessons and study guides for other New Testament books. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures program is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church. And now, here is Dr. George. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Word of God is power and truth. Whenever we hear the Word of God, whether we are hearing it proclaimed to us in a church, for example, or if we are reading sacred scripture, whether we are doing so to prepare for a Bible study class, or we are reading scripture prayerfully, it is Jesus Christ himself who is speaking to us. It is the voice of Jesus we hear, and his voice is act. When God speaks, what he says is, God says, let there be light, and there is light. Jesus says, be healed, and a crippled man is healed. God's word is act. His word and action are one and the same. He is the I am. There is no other word on earth that can compare with the word of divine revelation, which we receive in sacred scripture and also what is transmitted to us through sacred tradition. There is a power in this, and that power is transformative. It heals our soul, strengthens our soul, enlightens our mind, but we have to approach the word with an openness. We have to be we have to be humble, docile, and listening, as if we are hanging upon the words of Jesus, as if we are in the presence of Jesus, hearing him speak to us personally. And whatever he says, even if at the time we don't fully understand those words, we take them to heart and we ponder them over and over until they penetrate our hearts and minds so that we understand all that he has revealed in his word. The word of God is, as scripture says and the church teaches, it is alive, it is active, it is something living, it is effective. 
And so the Word of God has that same effect on our hearts. We look for miracles in our daily lives at times. Here is a simple miracle right within our reach, right within the Word of God. And it's something we should remind ourselves of every time we sit down before the Word of God and listen to the voice of Jesus speaking to us. In chapter 2 of the Gospel of St. Mark, St. Mark records an event where Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. And he writes that Jesus was at dinner in a particular house where there were a number of tax collectors and sinners sitting at table with Jesus and his disciples. Now, of course, for one to sit at table with another, to eat, to break bread, to socialize at table, is a very intimate act, something that the Jews understood also. It is symbolic of personal communion, of entering into the inner circle of a person or of one's family. So the scribes and Pharisees are upset about this and actually even scandalized. And Mark points out that they saw Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors. He says, for there were many among, among them, many among his followers. As if to say, we sit down at this table of the Lord, the word of God, And there are, at this table, many tax collectors and sinners. That's who we are. There are many gathering at the table of the Lord. This is where we eat the bread of the Lord, the word of God. We devour it. We are nourished by it. We are fed by it. And those who consider themselves righteous complain about this to Jesus and to each other. They say, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, It is not the healthy who need the doctor, but the sick do. I came to call not the upright, but sinners. Jesus is revealing that he calls all of us sinners. Now that's an interesting phrase. Jesus calls all of us sinners. We might use that phrase by way of explaining this deep mystery that Jesus is revealing in these particular words. When God calls all of us sinners, we therefore mean, first of all, that we are all sinners in Adam. As St. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, just as one man's offense, speaking of Adam, brought condemnation on all humanity, one man's good act has brought justification and life to all humanity. And that one man, of course, is Jesus Christ. Because of the fall, we are all sinners. We are all in need of a Savior. Not only do we have original sin on our soul, in fact, because of the fall, we are dead. The gates of heaven are closed to us. And we are cleansed from sin in baptism. But even after baptism, we incur personal sin on our soul. We remain sinners as we journey through life. We are all sinners, with the exception of the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was immaculately conceived in the womb of her mother in preparation to be the mother of God. Even her being conceived immaculately, however, was merited by her son, by the paschal mystery of her son. So we remain sinners because even after baptism, we have what is called concupiscence, which is the inclination to sin. We sin we fail. 
We are in need of a Savior, of a Redeemer, of salvation. But when we say that Jesus calls all of us sinners, what we are also saying by this phrase is that salvation is universal. And this is very important. Love, and we are speaking now of love with a capital L, God, love calls all. There is no one, no one from the beginning of creation to the end, no one outside the mercy and love of the Father, of the Father's call to salvation in love, through love. Jesus is the revelation of the love of the Father. He is the revelation of the mercy of the Father. The name Jesus means God saves. The name Jesus reveals the identity and mission of the Son, which is the universal salvation. It is the salvation of the world. As scripture tells us, only in him is their salvation. For of all the names in the world given to men, this is the only one by which we can be saved. What Jesus Christ therefore reveals when he says that he came to call sinners, not the upright, he is saying several things, that we are not upright before God. We are not, in other translations, you might find the word self-righteous. He says, I come not to call the self-righteous. Those who attempt to justify themselves, that's not possible to us. But there is no person who is just before God apart from the merits of Jesus Christ, apart from the gift of salvation given to us in Christ. This call, therefore, is about love. God created us in love. God has redeemed us out of his love for us. And God continues to sanctify us in love. As it says, we know this from the Gospel of St. John, that famous passage in chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that whoever might believe in him may not die, but may have eternal life. That is the revelation of the Father's love. Now, some, in speaking of this matter of sin and seeing ourselves as sinners, because remember, we, are, we have our own kind of misery about us, our own kind of wretchedness. You can even find this in church teaching. In the catechism, you'll find these words. You will find words such as these in the writings of the saints, calling themselves miserable wretches. St. Paul refers to himself in this way. And some say about this, God does not want us to think of ourselves in this way. He doesn't want us to feel bad about ourselves. It is not that God wants us to feel horrible about ourselves. God is not crushing us. God is revealing the truth to us to prepare us for salvation. Because if we do not understand that we are sinners, we, we can go along in life thinking we are not in need of Jesus Christ. We do not seek or respond to the gift of salvation. St. John says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth has no place in us. If we acknowledge our sins, however, God is trustworthy and upright so that he will forgive our sins 
and will cleanse us from all evil. This is what God is revealing. He wants us to respond to his love and mercy revealed in Christ. Jesus is the forgiveness of sins. To accept Jesus is to accept forgiveness from on high, from God, and to enter into that communion of love, which we cannot enter into apart from the forgiveness of sins in Christ. St. John goes on, If we say we have never sinned, we make Jesus a liar, and his word has no place in us. To say that we are not sinners is to say that the revelation of Jesus is worthless, is unnecessary. It is to make a mockery of the revelation of God in his Son. God has been speaking to us about this from the beginning through his faithful servants when, for example, Moses encounters God in the burning bush. What does he do? He veils himself. He takes his sandals off. Isaiah, when he encounters the thrice holy God, he has a vision of God and his throne. This is the prophet Isaiah, and how does he respond when he is in the presence of the holy God? He says, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. This is the great prophet Isaiah speaking. He says, I am a man of unclean lips. There's a similar incident with St. Peter. When he is in the presence of Jesus and of his power, his divinity, Jesus performs a miracle. They have been fishing all night. They haven't caught anything. And Jesus goes out and tells them to cast their nets over the other side of the boat. And Peter tries to explain to him that they've been fishing. Peter's a fisherman. He understands these things. It's like, believe me, there are no fish out there, and the Lord tells him to do this. He obeys in faith. And all of a sudden, it's as if he is enlightened, not only about God, but about himself. In the presence of God, when we see his truth, his power, his holiness, we begin to understand the truth about ourselves. And what is St. Peter's response? He says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. So every true encounter with the word of God becomes an encounter with the truth within ourselves. The church and the catechism teaches this because it's about the preparation then, this matter of understanding that we are sinners and in need of Jesus Christ is a preparation for our reception of the gift of salvation. The church says, To do its work, grace must uncover sin, so as to convert our hearts and bestow on us righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Like a physician, Jesus is the divine physician, who probes the wound before treating it, God by his word and by his spirit, casts a living light on sin. We see ourselves within, we see our darkness, within the light of Jesus Christ. Conversion requires a convincing of sin. In that call to repentance, we have to see the truth about ourselves in order to embrace fully the truth of Jesus Christ. But we need not be afraid. We need not worry. 
when we see how miserable and wretched we are, that is immediately followed up by the balming graces of God's love and mercy. As St. John says, as the Lord speaks to us, even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Jesus, we must never forget, is the revelation of the mercy of the Father, of the forgiveness of sins. But we must see ourselves in truth in order to respond fully to that grace. The Church tells us in speaking of the sacraments of Christian initiation, which are baptism, of course, by which we are cleansed of sin, and then also confirmation and the Eucharist. In confirmation, we are strengthened and confirmed in grace. In the Eucharist, we are nourished and healed and strengthened daily because we have communion with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. The Church says, one must appreciate the magnitude of the gift that God has given us in the sacraments of Christian initiation, in the sacrament of the humanity of Christ, we could say, in order to grasp the degree to which sin is excluded for those who have put on Christ. So even after we are baptized, even after we begin to respond to the grace of Christ, and we grow in holiness, in our moral life, in virtue, we become more spiritual. Even after this, the work is not yet finished. God wills to bring this to completion. We must not forget what he had said already in the Old Testament. Be holy as I, the Lord your God, am holy. We are to have the holiness of God one day in order to enter into his presence. Jesus, in teaching on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, be perfect, be perfected, as the Father in heaven is perfect. And this is a lifetime endeavor for us, but it is one which we do with our gaze fixed on love and mercy and forgiveness. And in this way, while understanding our misery, we can be at peace in our soul, knowing that God has loved us infinitely from the beginning and will forever, eternally. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. Up next, Dr. George will be speaking about In the Presence of the Lord We Do Not Fast, and then Our Response to the Law of Christ Reveals Our Hearts. St. Mark goes on to record an incident where the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees are both fasting and notice that the disciples of Jesus are not fasting. And they inquire about this because it doesn't make sense to them that if they are also disciples of the one God in heaven, why do they not follow the prescriptions of the law or those rules that are set down for their religious life? And Jesus responds to them, Surely the bridegroom's attendants cannot fast while the bridegroom is still with them. As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then on that day they will fast. There are 
several levels of paradox going on in these very rich words of Jesus. This passage contains a great spiritual paradox, as it were. First, Christ talks about, the bridegroom talks about his attendance, as if to speak of the attendance upon the bridegroom at the wedding feast. And he says that when the bridegroom is with them, as long as they are with the bridegroom, they cannot fast, they do not fast. There is a way in which the disciples, those who attend upon Christ at the wedding feast, and now we are also speaking here of the Eucharist, the wedding feast of the Lamb, not only in heaven, but we are speaking of it also as God has given it to us on earth, the Eucharist, where we commune with God by receiving the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. When we are with the bridegroom, As long as the bridegroom is still with us, we cannot fast, Jesus says. As long as we have the Eucharist, as long as we live as a Eucharistic people, we will lack for nothing. We do not have to fast. As long as we have Christ, we feast. We do not fast. But there is a way in which we will fast. And we know that Jesus eventually leaves them in the sense that he ascends to the Father. And he is not with us in a way that we can experience earthly. We live in Christ according to spirit. But we yearn in our hearts and in our souls for that eternal and perfect and full communion with Christ. In spite of feasting, we fast then because we do not yet have that perfect union with the bridegroom. So, a Eucharistic people is constantly feasting, and in spite of hardship and deprivation, we feast on Christ, but we also fast in that yearning, that desire in our heart, but we fast in another way. Because we feast on Christ, because he is our food, our bread of life, we fast from the world. We fast from the goods of the world. So there is a way in which we are always, as we live on earth, both feasting and also fasting. Conversely, those who consume the world's goods, those who feast on the world's goods, they feast and fast in rather opposite ways. While they consume the world's goods and feast on the world and are satiated by the things of the world, their soul and spirit hunger hunger for the more substantial food, the food that is eternal. And they don't know what's wrong. They may feel that they are completely filled up and overfilled with all of the things of the world, and yet they feel empty inside. They hunger. It's because they do not understand this matter that Jesus himself speaks of here about the kind of feasting and fasting we do as disciples of the Lord, as those who attend upon the Lord. Christ provides the only food that satisfies. He is the bread of heaven. And as God himself has revealed, that man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. It is not the earthly bread. The earthly bread becomes corrupted. It wastes. The earthly bread, as Jesus points out in his teaching on the bread of heaven, 
that even those in the Old Testament who had faith and ate the manna that God sent them, even they died. He said, their tombs are among us. Christ is pointing to himself as the bread of eternal life. And when we eat that bread, there is a way in which we always feast, but there is also a way in which we fast. But the kind of fasting we do as Christians doesn't affect or bother us. As St. Paul says, what can keep us from the love of Christ? Hardship, distress, persecutions, hunger, nakedness, peril, the sword? None of these things. In all these things we conquer overwhelmingly in Christ who loves us. Daniel and his companions, when we read the story of the book of Daniel, when the king had given orders that all his attendants in the kingdom should be fed from the royal table, and Daniel and his companions said no, that they did not want to eat the food from the king's table, because it was pointing to it was being indebted to and being in service to then an earthly king. And they pointed out, no, we don't need that kind of food to live. And they said, don't give us the rich food of the earthly king. And the one who had been given this order said, I'll lose my head, I'll lose my life if you begin to waste away. The king doesn't want this. And Daniel said, don't worry about it. He had faith. He knew that they, by feasting solely on the one true God, they would have all that they would need and that they would be sufficiently nourished and that, in fact, they would fare better than the others. And that's exactly what happens. At the end of a period of time, Scripture tells us that Daniel and his companions looked better and fatter, healthier, than all the others who had been filled with the king's rations. God provides abundantly, though the provisions God gives us so often seem meager to us. They seem meager according to our natural human standards. Again, Israel of the Old Testament complains about what Israel sees as the meager, the unsubstantial provisions which God gives them to endure their life in the desert. First of all, God gives them the unleavened bread. It's an insubstantial bread in terms of how it would fill one. It seems not to satisfy one. They must eat the unleavened bread in their departure from Egypt, in their departure from the land of Sim. As God brings them into the promised land, while they're in the desert, how does God feed them? With manna. And they complained. It's like, what is this manna, this little white stuff that we're supposed to eat? This is supposed to be sufficient for us because they did not trust the power and mystery of God at work in the bread, the word which he provides. The loaves, the miracles of the loaves and fish, by which Jesus fed thousands, as many as 5,000, not including the wives and children. And he began with just a few loaves and fish. And finally, of course, the tiny white host, the sacred host of the Eucharist, which appears, according to human standards, natural standards, the standards of the world, It appears to be very insubstantial, and yet it is the only substantial bread, the bread of life that we eat. This is the bread which God gives us to feast on in this life.
there is a resistance that remains, just as there was of old, there is also in the New Testament. Jesus himself says, in speaking of wine, because the images of bread and wine are often placed together as a kind of divine pedagogy, pointing to the body and blood of Christ of the New Covenant. And Jesus says, nobody who has the old wine wants the new. The old is good, he says. There is the wine and bread of the Old Testament. Christ reveals the new wine and the new bread of the new covenant. The prophet Hosea had prophesied, they will be disappointed of the new wine. Now, when we go a little further in this this passage of St. Mark, after Jesus has spoken of of the fasting and feasting of the attendance of the bridegroom, he goes on to say, No one sews a piece of unshrunken cloth on an old cloak. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and the tear gets worse. Nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins too. No, Jesus says, new wine into fresh skins. There's this beautiful pedagogy, and Jesus is sort of lacing it together here when he talks about feasting and fasting, which we equate with bread, when he speaks of the new wine and the old wine and the wine skins. This whole divine pedagogy through which God has been speaking from the Old Testament into the New, through the sacred images of bread and wine, point to Christ. They are fulfilled in Christ. The Old Testament pedagogy is, we can say, refined, perfected in the New. And the New Covenant surpasses that which is revealed in the Old. So it is refined and perfected and brought to its fulfillment in Christ. In particularly the Eucharist, which is the new bread and the new wine of the new covenant. These surpass in reality, abundance, and consolation what were merely signs in the Old Testament, preparing for and pointing to their fulfillment in Christ. We are those new vessels. We must become new creatures, a new creation, so that we can hold within ourselves the new wine of Jesus Christ. Jesus tells his apostles that he will, at the institution of the Last Supper, that he will not drink wine with them again until he drinks the new wine with them in the kingdom of heaven. This new wine, which he drinks with his people, so to speak, is that new wine of the wedding feast which is the blood of the Lamb. We must be prepared to hold within us that new wine so it can be brought to perfection. But, as Jesus says, you can't put wine like this into old wineskins. It will burst. It will tear. The wine and bread of the new covenant cannot be contained within the old covenant the Old Covenant will sort of tear apart and it will burst forth because the wine and bread of the New Covenant has been made so by the power of God, the divinity. When we consider what happens, the great miracle at the wedding feast of Cana, 
Notice they have been drinking what is good wine. No doubt it was good wine. It had been set aside in preparation for this wedding feast. They run out of wine. And the Blessed Mother instructs the servants to go and fill these large jars with water. Christ then performs a miracle, which is now famous to us, in which the water instantly, through a miracle of Christ, through his divine power, becomes wine. And when the president of the wedding feast comes forward and tastes this wine, he says, the best wine has been saved until last. Now, of course, without his knowing fully the meaning of those words, God has them recorded in divine revelation because he is speaking about this new wine, the best wine, the wine of the new covenant, comes last. And it it totally surpasses the old wine. The old wine is good, but it's not the best wine. It's not the supernatural wine. It has not been given to us by the power of God. And so, we have this new wine. In the old wine, there is a natural fermentation which takes place, a natural process. But the new wine occurs through a divine process. It's something which happens by the power of God. The new wine of the new covenant cannot be poured into vessels which have not been prepared to hold this new wine. It's as if water is poured into the vessels. The life of the Holy Spirit is poured into us. And by the power of Jesus Christ, the life within us is transformed into the best kind of wine. This is the wine of the new kingdom. It is the wine of the kingdom of God perfected in in heaven. And it is this wine that we already drink the blood of Christ, in the new covenant in the age of the church. The prophet Isaiah says, On this mountain Yahweh is preparing a banquet of rich food, a banquet of fine wines. He was pointing to the Eucharist and the new covenant. At the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3, St. Mark records several incidents, picking corn on the Sabbath, and where Jesus cures the withered hand of a man, and the reaction of the Pharisees and scribes to these miracles. The response to Jesus is very revealing about their hearts. Jesus, we must be aware, is a sign of contradiction to them, because in his person, in his teachings and in his actions, he is revealing a new and higher standard. He is bringing to an end the old kingdoms, especially those those human kinds of standards which they have set up and established in their own hearts. And he is calling them to this newness and to conversion. When we reject the messengers God sends us, and the messenger par excellence, of course, is Jesus Christ, the Word of God, but God speaks to us through people and situations around us all the time. He sends us little messages of truth and love. And sometimes we act like the Pharisees and scribes, and we rear up in our hearts, and we reject the message. Why? Because we put walls up in front of our heart. We don't want to pass through that mysterious death of self, which we must all undergo, the repentance, which leads to conversion and new life in Christ. The sin within us, the old person, 
must be put to death. And because we sometimes don't want to do this, whether through pride or hardness of heart or whatever, it's as if we have so much stock in the kind of life that we're living. What we do is we attempt to destroy or kill the truth or love presented to us. This is why scripture records that the Pharisees and scribes continually tried to not only plot to entrap Jesus, but they eventually seek to destroy him because they are going to put an end, they intend to put an end to the message before which they cannot continue to stand in their own form of righteousness. It appears to them that Jesus is acting against the essential institutions and laws of the chosen people. But as he makes very clear, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. No, I have come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. By his teachings and actions, he is placing the law on its true footing. He is giving us the full revelation, the purpose, the meaning, the explanation of the law and bringing it to its fulfillment. Scripture tells us in many instances that Jesus taught with authority, unlike the scribes and Pharisees. This authority is not only revealed in his teachings, in his demeanor, the fact that he has the confidence of the Father, the Spirit bearing witness to him, but this authority is something which is guaranteed by the divine signs or miracles that he performed. He has power to back up what he says in his person. And of course, this eventually leads the Pharisees and scribes to later accuse Jesus of acting by the power of Beelzebul. He has earlier, when he cures the the man with a withered hand, he asks them, is it permitted on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? And they don't answer the question because they can't give an answer in any way whereby they can avoid revealing the hatred in their hearts and the sin in their hearts. Of course, it is lawful only to do good. It is never lawful on the Sabbath or otherwise to do evil. Jesus is posing to them the question. It's like, look at my teachings. Look at the fruits of my life. And Everything that Jesus did was good. He healed the crippled. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He freed people who were possessed of demons. He healed people of terrible diseases and maladies. All these things are good. And Jesus says that if it's true, he says, how can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. What Jesus does is good. It's about goodness and love. And Satan, who is the contrary of this, it wouldn't make sense for him to do any of this because he would end up dividing his own kingdom. He would end up shattering the strength of his own kingdom. Jesus is making clear. It's something that they should have been able to understand, if not by grace, even naturally. Even naturally, a person can look at the fruits in another's life. And when those fruits are good, when they heal and restore and give life, strengthen people and build them up, console and encourage, those are fruits of the Holy Spirit. They are not 
the fruits of Satan. Thank you for listening to Real Presence Radio. If you're just tuning in, Dr. George of Sacred Heart Productions is going through the Gospel of St. Mark. For lessons, study guides, and more information, please visit sacredheartproductions.org. In this final segment, Dr. George will be covering Christ Founds His Church on the Apostles and Our Relationship with God Takes Precedence Over All. St. Mark includes in chapter 3 a rather brief, simple, simply stated passage where he simply declares, he presents declaratively the naming of the Twelve Apostles, the appointment of the Twelve Apostles. Now we find a similar passage in the other Synoptic Gospels of Matthew and Luke. These passages we can become so familiar with that when we hear them read at church, for example, or we come across them in reading in Scripture, we can tend to breeze over them quickly. Oh, okay, this is the passage that simply names the Twelve Apostles. It's presented simply, briefly, directly. But these passages are absolutely critical to everything else, not only in the Gospels, but in the whole of the New Testament of Jesus Christ. The appointment of the Apostles is connected to all else that Jesus reveals. And in fact, it impacts God's plan for the salvation of mankind until the end of time. Many things can be said about this, and we will certainly address this in other lessons. But for the purpose of today's question, we will say several things that we should keep in mind as we move forward in in the lessons of this gospel. By calling and appointing the apostles, Jesus gives them a share in his own power and authority. This is very important. They are commissioned. Jesus has a mission from the Father, a joint mission with the Holy Spirit, and he shares his power and authority with them. When someone is commissioned, the word means a mission with, come, that person shares the mission with, shares in the mission of another person. This is very important because, and Jesus makes clear in several places in the Gospels we see this, that he shares his power and authority with his apostles. He constantly tells them, what you hear me teaching, you teach. He sends them to the ends of the earth to teach what he has taught. What you see me doing, you do in remembrance of me. Making clear that that power in the word of God, when it is spoken again, will make present the miraculous power of Jesus that we saw, that we knew, that was evidenced in his life on earth. This, of course, is what happens in in the institution of the Eucharist. Now, the apostles then are sent out in his name. To be sent out in one's name is to be sent out in the power and authority of the name and under the name of another. There's great power in speaking and acting with the name of another who has authority over many. There are 12 chosen, which is important. We can spend a great deal of time, if we wanted to, going back and searching first the Old Testament and bringing it into the New, because the New completes and surpasses the Old Testament. The fact that it is 12, and God repeatedly speaks of 12. We have the 12 tribes of Israel, 
And in the book of Revelation, we are told that in heaven, there will be the 12 apostles that will be the foundation stones of that heavenly edifice. So the 12 are chosen. And there is a sense in which that 12 is a perfect number. At the very least, it is the multiplication of the three, the three of the Trinity, and the four, the number four, which is often used in reference to earthly things, the four ends of the earth, for example. So we have the humanity and the divinity brought together, the two natures in the person of Christ, through whom we have the order of creation and the order of redemption brought to their fulfillment. The twelve are also men, and that is no accident. Jesus is not constrained by whatever may or may not have been the notions, the spirit of the age, anything like this. He is present in the earth simply to fulfill perfectly the will of the Father. He doesn't forget for a moment the fact that there are also women in the world. God, who has created man and woman equal in freedom and dignity, he is not dismissing women, denigrating women. It has nothing to do with this. It has to do with God's plan. It has to do with the plan from the beginning, which God revealed in the order of creation and which he will fulfill in the order of redemption. These two orders are complementary. And the two orders together integrate the spiritual and earthly realities. Now, divine revelation is always faithful to God's plan. God has a plan and he brings it about. The problem is that people sometimes come to sacred scripture, to the word of God or sacred tradition, and they read about the doctrines or the teachings of the church, and they don't understand. They think there has to be error because this doesn't make sense for what I understand about life in the world. We frequently do not understand the deeper truths which God has already revealed, written into the orders of creation and redemption. And in faith, in obedience of faith, in that docility of spirit, do we open ourselves up to knowledge and wisdom and understanding which God gives. And I'm speaking here of gifts of the Holy Spirit, not merely natural knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, but supernatural knowledge, wisdom, and understanding, which perfect, purify, correct, and elevate all of our humanity. God is thus fulfilling this unity of a plan, and he does so through the choice of the twelve and through the choice of the fact that they are men. The fact that these apostles, and only the apostles, are present at the institution of the Eucharist, the Last Supper, is important. The apostles, to them is entrusted the Eucharist, the sacrament of the Eucharist. It is also at the Last Supper that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is instituted. So the Eucharist is entrusted to the apostles of Jesus Christ. Without the apostles... The world is without the Eucharist. The two are connected closely together. And the authority and the power of the apostles is handed on down through the centuries. What Jesus reveals to his apostles and commands them to do does not stop with the death of the last apostle, even though they 
they were privileged to be the first of the apostles and to witness the resurrection. But they hand on that power and authority that is handed on to them by Jesus Christ himself. God has been speaking to us about this mystery from the beginning in the Old Testament. Moses, for example, hands on to Joshua, commissions Joshua to carry on the mission that God had given to him. Elijah commissions Elisha to carry on, to transmit, to continue the work, the mission which God had entrusted to him. And likewise, in the age of the church, the apostles, beginning with the first apostles, down to the present day and until the end of time, will hand on, this is why we have the laying on of hands at a priestly ordination and an Episcopal ordination, through a laying on of hands, there is a transmission of the power and authority of Christ. They will carry on in his name the work which Christ entrusted to those first apostles of his. Apostolic succession, therefore, is essential to the memorial of the Eucharist, which we have in the Catholic Church, and also to the whole mission of Christ on earth. Jesus, as priest, prophet, and king, gives a share of these offices to his apostles, who function as priest, prophet, and king in the age of the New Covenant. And they do so through their sanctifying, teaching, and preaching, and governing office. Apostolic succession is also necessary for the continued dispensation of the fruits of the Paschal Mystery, the fruits of Christ's redemption. We must remember that Christ's priesthood is unique, that he alone is the one mediator between God and man. As the Church teaches, only Jesus Christ is the true priest, and all others are ministers of Christ. And that is true for all of the apostles. Jesus says, in sending his apostles out, He who hears you, hears me. And he who rejects you, rejects me. And anyone who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. These are powerful words, which we must also hear in our hearts. Jesus' words to his apostles, the bishops, are the living, teaching apostles of Jesus Christ in the church. And when Jesus says to them, and therefore also to us, that when we hear them teaching, we hear Jesus teaching, the voice of Jesus. And when we reject them, their teaching, and their work in the church, their share in the mission of Christ, we are rejecting the mission, the work, the teaching, the actions of Christ himself. And therefore, we are rejecting the Father along with that. Finally, St. Mark has two passages where he speaks about the family of Jesus. One of these passages is unique to the Gospel of Mark alone. And it's the one where there are crowds pressing in on Jesus. The family of Jesus comes to him because they see that he is so pressed by the crowds that he doesn't even... He doesn't have the time to eat. He probably went without food, drink, rest in his ministry. It was an exhaustive ministry, that public ministry. But he persevered in that. So focused was he on his mission from the Father 
that he appeared to be mad to his relatives, the people around him. St. Mark records when his relations heard of this, the fact that the crowds continued to press in on Jesus so that he couldn't even have a meal, they set out to take charge of him. They said he is out of his mind. Now, if this passage seems somewhat bewildering to us, we have to keep in mind two points to help us understand it. The first is that only the truly spiritual understand the spiritual things. Only the truly spiritual people in life understand the spiritual things. And secondly, that God's chosen one, who is Christ, but we are his chosen ones as as children of God, God's chosen one is consumed with zeal for the Father's house. This is something clearly revealed of Christ in his lifetime, and it must become true for us in our lifetime, that we must in some way or form become consumed with zeal for the Father's house. Only by the Spirit of Christ can we understand this passage and the one which follows upon it a short time later, where there's a crowd again around Jesus, and a message is passed to Jesus which says, Look, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. Jesus replies, Who is my mother and my brothers? And looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, Here is my mother and my brother and my sisters. Now he's pointing to all the people around him and saying this, Anyone who does the will of God, that person is my brother and sister and mother. Now, at first glance, it may seem that Jesus is somehow dismissing his own mother, Mary, the mother of God, that he is perhaps denying her privileged place as his mother. But in fact, Jesus is honoring her. He is exalting her. There is no creature on the face of the earth who more fully and perfectly did the will of God in her lifetime than Mary. He says that the one who does the will of God is the one who is honored. She does the will of God perfectly. But he is also associating all who do the will of God with his family. He is saying, these are the people of God. Let me tell you who is God's family. God's family are those who listen to the word and who are faithful to that word. We understand this as something which is, which is spiritual. St. Paul, in his first letter to the Corinthians, tells us this about the matter of the spiritual versus the natural. He says, Nobody knows the qualities of God except the Spirit of God. Now the Spirit we have received is not the Spirit of the world, but God's own Spirit. We have the Spirit through baptism. When we live in the state of grace, the Spirit of God is living and working, and speaking, and acting in us, so that we may understand the lavish gifts God has given us. This will include the understanding of the Word of God. We will be able to understand the things of the world, the mysteries of Christ. We will be able to penetrate them, fitting spiritual language to spiritual things. The natural person has no room for the gifts of God's Spirit. To him they are folly. He cannot recognize them because their value can be assessed only by the Spirit. 
without the Spirit of God in us, we cannot understand, we cannot even assess the things of the world. The spiritual person, on the other hand, can assess the value of everything, that which is both natural and spiritual, and his own value cannot be assessed by anybody else. Certainly, those standing around could not assess the value of Jesus Christ. They could not comprehend or measure what he was doing and why he was doing it. They saw it in only very human and imperfect ways. St. Paul finishes by saying, For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? The people who were saying that Jesus must be out of his mind could not understand the mind of God. They did not know what Jesus was about, what he was doing. Everything that Jesus says and does is ordered to his love for the Father. Everything he is consumed by zeal for the Father. And this is the key for us to life itself, that all things must be in their proper order. And when they are, everything will happen. God's plan will be carried out in our lives. Jesus tells us in no uncertain terms that we must love God first and foremost. This is the first and greatest commandment, that we must love God with our whole heart, our whole mind, our whole soul, and our whole strength, and our neighbor as ourself. Isn't this exactly what Jesus is doing? By pouring himself out in service to the people of God, in these passages that St. Mark talks about, he goes without food, without drink, without rest. He honors his mother by revealing the will of the Father as being what is most important to our life. And in doing this, he is loving God's whole family by completing the mission of the Father and by loving his neighbor, that is his brothers and sisters, as he loves himself. And God's love for himself is perfect in the Trinity, the three persons in one God. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening to Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study on Real Presence Radio. Lessons, study guides, and other material can be found online at sacredheartproductions.org. Please tune in next time while we continue the Gospel of St. Mark. Dr. George will be covering the following five topics. Parables and riddles in the Divine Revelation. Second, the parable of the sower and the seed. Third, Jesus asleep on the stormy sea. Fourth, why the Gerasenes begged Jesus to leave them. And fifth, the woman with the hemorrhage and Jairus' daughter. Knowing the Scriptures Bible Study is designed to help people understand Scripture in light of sacred tradition. All lessons include related questions and relevant readings from the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Knowing the Scriptures is produced by Sacred Heart Productions, whose mission is to proclaim Christ and His love for His Bride, the Church.